Let's do it. So let's get into the study of Genesis chapter 12, 13, 14. Actually 13 and 14. Let's head there. Some of you might recognize by the picture just from it's been used historically to, re- to talk about this gentleman. His name was Richard. He ruled in England for 10 years. In his 10 years of ruling in England, he didn't spend much, if hardly any of that time in England. In fact, they said that he probably didn't even speak English whatsoever. He was French speaking. And you know him. He's the historical character that uh, when he became king, he got involved with one of the crusades, the third crusade in 1189. He joined the German king. He joined as well the French king. And they started this crusade. They were headed down to do the uh, Holy Lands. They wanted to get Jerusalem recovered or recaptured or should we say freed from the Saracens who had gone in there and conquered that region under the leadership of Saladin. And so Richard and these other kings, they started the crusade. They're marching through Europe. And as they're coming uh, across the country headed for the Holy Lands, the German king who was supposed to be the leader of the crusade drowned in a crossing of a river. That caused many of the Germans to turn around and go back. And then the French king shortly thereafter in one of the first conflicts that was trivial, he took off, went back home. And so Richard's the only one left leading this crusade with mostly English. And they get down into the Holy Lands and they don't get real far. They do capture Cyprus, turn it over to uh, the Templars. And then they have some conflicts, some battles, Antioch and things, the city of Acre, some of these they, they have their battles. And uh, he, in the battlefield and in that region, he, he uh, shines on the battlefield to the point that Saladin, the leader of the Muslim corps, the, the uh, Saracens, they, he admires Richard. And he gives Richard a nickname. Anybody remember the, the nickname he gives him? Richard, Richard the Lionheart, yeah. And uh, in fact, he sends him horses, he sends him food, all kinds of, even some gems as gifts to recognize that there were enemies that I have great respect for you. And in time, they develop a treaty between the two of them so that the pilgrims are able to go to the promised land. And Richard starts headed back for home. When he comes towards home, you've probably heard the story because it's involved with the legend of Robin Hood. On the way back, he gets captured. And uh, he becomes this captive uh, in one of the in one of the Eastern European countries, and they say that he'll be released for a ransom. If it was converted into dollars today, they asked for over two billion dollars for him to be released as a ransom. So they thought he was worth a lot of money. In the days, as people have historians have calculated, they figured that that meant twenty five percent of every Englishman's uh, total income for that year would have to go to pay the ransom. So that'd be a pretty hefty ransom, 25% of all of our incomes throughout the nation. And so he's finally released, and then when he gets back to England, he doesn't spend most of his time there. In fact, he goes into France, has a lot of battles in France, and during that time he's conf- conflicts with the French, and he ends up, if some of you remember the story, he ends up at one of the, one of the uh, castles where they're attacking the castle. Some boy who isn't even well-trained, he's like... Um, what, what do they call the young men who were novices at that time? Um, the apprenticer, page. He shoots an arrow, not even intending to do a whole lot of harm. He shoots and he hits Richard by the neck, and, and Richard survives. In fact, when they conquer the city, he finds out who that boy is, gives him a reward for being so brave as to shoot him. And uh, eventually he dies because of the wound, because of the infection. But he comes through history, and we all know him as this character because of his bravado, his courage. He gets that, that idea of Richard the Great, or he's called Richard the Lionheart. People pick up because of their battlefield, because of their, their um, 
circumstances that run. They pick up nicknames. If we were to go back into Genesis 13, we would find that Abraham is going to, if we want to get a nickname, we could give him that nickname, the man of great faith. Or especially in chapter 13, what I find really interesting, chapter 13, 14, is here he is in this section of his life having a lot of conflicts. This chapter is just loaded with different, different obstacles, different conflicts that all of a sudden they fall into his lap. And the way he responds is really, really you know, an amazing response. It's marvelous considering who he is, what his background is. And we could call him a great man because of how he responds in these conflicts. In fact, let me just highlight them. Then we'll go into them in specifics. If you look at chapter 13 and 14, from the angle that I'm taking where he has conflicts, there is one conflict that is a physical conflict. He goes into battle, and uh, he, he goes in and he fights against overwhelming odds, and he succeeds. And so his greatness is seen in his military skill, in his, his warrior capacities. He also has a really big conflict that arises in personal relationships with relatives. Now none of you can relate to that, I'm sure. <laughs> okay? That you have one of those strange relatives that you just kind of conflicts brew and brew. Well, that's what Abraham has. And he has conflicts with Lot and they have to de- deal with them. And the way he deals with Lot and the conflicts I find absolutely um, really commendable. He's really great now. He handles the people conflicts. He handles a spiritual conflict. He is attacked. He is tempted. He is going to be um, given opportunities and given, given things that could easily dissuade and distract him. But he stops. He says, nope. And he handles the conflict very well. So just taking those three thoughts, let's just develop it a little bit more and see from the passage before we get into our prayer time, just how did he make his decisions? What did he do in the middle of conflicts? Because we all have them. We all have situations that, that are challenging, they create tension, you know, they are sometimes help us to, that we don't uh, get a full night's rest or, or, you know, we have to try to put out the fires and he does a really, really good job. And so let's just develop, the first one is one that, that most of us are never going to have occasion to get involved with, but it shows his greatness in this regard. He has this greatness in how he handles himself in a physical conflict, a civic conflict, a, a civil issue. And one that's dealing with the society around him. There's a battle that takes place. To get the setting, to get the scene, now I'm not taking it verse by verse in order. I'm jumping into the heart of the passage. Where in chapter 14 we find what happens is this. Is Abraham is, uh, has come back from the, let's set the scene, he's come back from fleeing into Egypt, chapter 13. He comes back um, and from the famine and running down there and lying about his wife, gets back in the promised land and shortly back after he's back in the promised land, he does a little bit of traveling and after his traveling is over, all of a sudden he and his nephew Lot, they separate. We'll come to that next. And they go their different ways. And Abraham is in now getting resettled in this one area and as he's getting resettled, he hears what's happening to his nephew Lot. And the story unfolds this way, that there is a group of kings that are all the way over in the Babylon region. They are over in ancient Babylon region, and they come, and there's a, there's a group of four kings. Their names are given in chapter 14, verse 1. I don't even want to read it because I'm going to say it wrong. So you can just read it to yourself. That they come, and it gives the different kings, and they make war with the kings in the land of Canaan, in what we call the promised land region. 
they come in and uh, according to the text, these local kings or city kings, they along with others, they fall in battle to these eastern kings. So the eastern kings come in, they've conquered this whole region and they put taxes upon or, or bounties upon the different city kings and they're asking them to pay. Now if you go down a couple of verses down to about verse 3, it gives you an idea, I'm sorry, verse 4, it gives you an idea how long this has been going on. It says 12 years that they served Kirileomer and in the 13th year the kings in Canaan in that region they decide they've had enough. We've paid enough taxes. We've paid enough revenue. We're going to stop. We're being, we're being taken advantage of. And so the kings according to the next verse they rebel. In the 14th year then Kirileomer and the kings that were with him, the eastern kings, they come in and they start going through the region of Canaan and they take out tribe after tribe after tribe and to put down the revolt they take away all the different allies that could come to the assistance of the five kings who have united in the revolt. And so they're basically just marching through this region one after another toppling the tribes, toppling the cities. And so what happens is they join in battle. Now there's just the five local kings versus the four eastern kings. And they come into a point where it says in down in verse 8 it says and there went out the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Admah and the king of Zeboim and the king of Bela or Zoar and they joined battle with them in the vale of Sidim when with Kaderleomer the king of Elam titled the king of the nations and all the others the four kings with five and at the vale uh, of Sidim where they have the battle it says it's filled with slime pits the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah they fled and fell there and they that remained fled to the mountains so the eastern kings they just clean up house I mean they, they just really whack them whack them uh, eloquently where these fellows now they're, they're soundly defeated they have to run they're running for the hills literally and so the kings they come in and there's nobody to stop them and they're going to take out their anger they're going to they're going to punish the cities that have rebelled and we read a little bit further what happens that they took all the goods verse 11 of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their victuals that is their foodstuffs and went their way they took even Lot, Abraham's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom, and his goods, and they departed. And so they've had this massive victory. They're taking all these captives, and they're headed back. Abraham hears about it. He's heard how they've swept through the region, coming down the eastern side of the Jordan River, and then crossing over and beating those on the western side. And Abraham, who is not a military trained man to our knowledge, Abraham, who has his own group, it says that what he does he hears from somebody who had escaped, verse 13, they told him about what would happen and when Abraham heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his trained servants, born in his own house, all 318 and pursued unto them to the area of later on called Dan. And so he meets them in the upper region of what we would call Galilee and they have a battle. And we read in the battle basically what takes place. It says he div- in verse 15, he divided himself against them, he and his servants by night and smote them, pursued them unto Hobah, which is on the left hand of Damascus. And so he routes these guys with a smaller core of individuals, takes on five of their, five of these, I'm sorry, four of these eastern kings who have marched a long way. So obviously they have good resources, good supply line. He takes them he beats them. And so Abraham has traveled, he's done all this work, and in his cleverness of how he divided, he has this victory. Obviously the Lord has helped him. 
whatever concluding something about the guy, the guy's clever. The guy is wise. The guy is an individual who is, um, he's involved in his community in this regard. If we put it up and talk about it, that he is, he is going to make a difference. He is going to rescue and not be a passive citizen. And as a result, he's heroic. They talk about him at the end of the chapter that he is one who is a hero. And they even Melchizedek is complimenting about how Abraham has just excelled in this area. And so we have this fellow be showing his skill, his level in this area. And so just let me make a couple thoughts with it before we go into the more practical areas. That when he sees a civil or a civic crisis, he isn't one to just be the turtle and pull his head in. He's one that says, okay, I can do something. I will get involved. And he goes out of his way, travels the, the long distance, takes the risk. He uses his cleverness. He gets involved. And he tries to make a difference in protecting those citizens around him, especially those those who he is related to, which leads us into that second area. That if I were to say that here is his greatness shown, it is how he deals with family conflicts, family issues. He's an individual that he's not immune from them. None of us are. You, we, we could stand here now and start telling stories. Each one of us has some relative, some situation that we can point to and say, the, these people have created a lot of conflicts. These people, they live for drama and tension, and they have created hubbub and stirs and most every one of our our families or clans we've got individuals like that individuals that are that really press the buttons of other people well abraham has one who's traveling with him it's his nephew lot and lot has is going to become a very sore spot if you would in his life and tensions start arising the sitting the situation is this we have to back up into chapter 13 to get more of that story is when they first came back a few weeks, months before the battle took place. It says that in chapter 13, verse 1, Abraham came up out of Egypt, and uh, he's very rich in cattle and silver and goods. And it talks about where he gets himself situated, and that he calls again upon the name of the Lord after he had gone down into Egypt, verse 4 of chapter 13. And then it mentions that with him is Lot, and Lot also has a lot of flocks, herds, and tents, verse 5. The land is not able to bear them, that they might dwell together, for their substance was quite great. So that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abraham's flocks, cattle, and the herdmen of Lot's cattle. And including the Canaanite and Perizzite, the people living in the land, all of a sudden their cattle are eating up everything. And so there's, there's a lot of issues taking place. And Abraham has to come to a conclusion or a decision what he's going to do. Now, it could be just the greatness, and that's what the passage emphasizes, the great number of the flocks. Remember, this area has just suffered a very grievous famine. So that could have affected that the amount of crops available are even limited as well, according to what happened just a few verses before this. So here they are. They've got this conflict and they have, to, they have to deal with it. Now Abraham's greatness knowing that there's conflicts, it's affecting his family, it's affecting his workers, it's affecting the community. Abraham verse 8 says unto Lot let there be no strife I pray thee between me and you and between your herdsmen and my herdmen for we are brothers. It is not the whole land before you. Separate thyself I pray thee from me and if you will take the left hand I will go to the right. If you depart to the right hand then I will go to the left. 
left. Lot lifted up his eyes and beheld all the plains of Jordan that was well watered everywhere before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, even as the garden of the Lord, like unto the land of Egypt, as thou hast come unto Zoar. Then Lot chose him all the plain of Jordan, and Lot journeyed east, and they separated themselves, the one from the other, and Abraham dwelled in the land of Canaan. Lot dwelled in the cities of the plain, and pitched his tent toward Sodom, but the men, and we go on a little bit. Let's, let's just stop. Let's thought, think. Abraham goes to Lot and basically says, you choose the parcel of land that you want. Here we are, okay, we're relatives, I want peace, you make a decision, you decide. We're not going to flip a coin, you can go first. That is absolutely amazing when you consider the culture and the situation that they're dealing with. He did not, he did not put his family ahead of doing the will of God. He could have easily said, you know, if we go back into Egypt, we can still stay together. We can still be, of, be you know, helping one another out. We could increase even more our herds and flocks. But he knows God doesn't want him back in Egypt. God just brought him up out of there. He doesn't say, let's go back to our homeland, back in Ur or Haran. He doesn't do that. God wants us here. God wants me here. You decide. We're staying in this region. I'm not going to bail out on what God would have, but you get to decide which part of this area you want. And so he's going to say, we're going to follow the Lord, I am. We're going to do what God wants us to be here. And with that in mind, you choose where your here is. And what's challenging, what, what to me is really impressive is that he is an individual that when he's dealing with a relative, he doesn't ignore the problem. He doesn't pretend that if I just, if I just you know, turn my eyes away from it, it'll go away. It'll solve itself. He knows better than that. He knows that this is an issue that has to be addressed. It cannot, we cannot pretend that it's not there. He's got it to deal with it. And so he doesn't get angry. He doesn't get bitter. He sees the problem. And what he does is he takes the initiative and he goes to Lot and says, we've got to find a solution. Now that's unusual because many people would rather not even deal with a family crisis or a family issue. They'd rather just have it go away or barricade themselves in their own home and then not talk to the relatives, not talk to the parent, the brother, the sister, the cousin, you know, the in-laws, the outlaws, whoever. They'd rather just pretend it goes away or they'd rather wait until that person makes the first move because they should. The other person should be the one to come and talk to me. The other person should come and make, make the solutions for it. Because Abraham could have easily said, Lot, I'm the older one. You should do whatever I want. And you should, you should be you know, catering to me. He doesn't do it. He takes the initiative. He isn't the one who's creating the problem. Okay? He's taking the initiative. He's trying to resolve it and come up with a peaceful settlement. That's maturity. That's greatness. The greatness of an individual who is seeking to resolve the problems, not ignoring them. The greatness in an individual trying to find peaceful solutions in family tensions, not just clam up, shut up, get angry, or hold a grudge. This is greatness in action. Greatness in the fact that what he does is he is extremely gracious when he goes to Lot. He doesn't attack Lot. He doesn't belittle Lot. He doesn't uh, disrespect Lot. In fact, when he goes, he's using in the Hebrew language, he's using very polite terms, very impressive terms. He's not condescending to his nephew. He isn't dictatorial to his nephew, but he goes with graciousness, and he says, please, Please, can we find some solution here? And he proposes a solution. He doesn't accuse. He doesn't attack. This is greatness. Greatness is dealing with people problems and relationship issues with grace and self-control. Something else that strikes me and really impressive is he gives up his rights. 
He should have been the one to make the first choice. He's older. God has spoken to him. He has been the lead person in all their moves to this point. He's the one who is the patriarch. But instead, he gives up his right and he says, Lot, you can go first. You make the choice. And so Abraham shows wisdom in dealing with the problem, initiative in dealing with it, and what, the way he does it, extremely gracious, giving up his right. And I think, and I say it again, this is greatness. Giving up your right, not saying, okay, I want more, but giving up what you have as a right so as to try to keep a peaceful relationship with others to resolve conflicts. And so this individual shows that. But here's where we've got to come down and ask, okay, when there's tensions between you and your family, your family could be your roommate at college, your family could be the people that you live with in your household, your family could be your relatives outside your household, but they're within the blood kin, and they, there's tensions, there's problems. Your family could include somebody here, that you worship with, your brothers and sisters in the Lord. But there's a tension, there's a conflict, there's some type of issue over money. There's issues over something that was said. There's issues over something that was borrowed, broken, and then returned in that bad condition. There's issues over, there's, it could be issues over borrowing money and not paying it back. There's, there's tons of possible issues that have arisen in people's conflicts. How do you deal with them? How do you handle those? Do you just ignore them? Do you just pretend, you know, we've got this, this tension, we'll just act like it's not there? Do you yell, scream, and give them, or give the other individual the quiet treatment? The issue comes up with a brother or sister. Do you just ignore them and not talk to them and just make them, try to make them feel guilty or manipulate them through your own mistreatment of that individual or go to other people and talk against them and about them without trying to reconcile the problem? Are you, what we would say Abraham, is a portrait of graciousness or are you a picture of stubbornness? where you are trying to say, I want what I want, I'm not giving up my rights, I'm just going to prove that I don't have to whatever. No, no, no. Greatness is being able to do whatever it takes to find this peaceful solution, not having to get your own way, not trying to find blame or fault, but a solution to resolve the problem. You know, it's so easy to hold a grudge, and it happens to us so quickly, so often. All of a sudden, somebody offends. Somebody says something about our kids. Somebody does us dirty business-wise. And it could be a brother or sister. It could be a relative. Somebody gets the inheritance that you were supposed to get. Your parents, all of a sudden, you know, they, they give your brother or your sister something that you wanted or something you made for your parents and it ends up in your other family member's household. You go, you ask and say, hey, you know, I made that in shop class or whatever and they say, no, mom gave it to me and that causes a hurt, causes a pain. How do you deal with that? How do you, how do you resolve that? Are you like the typical individual that just hangs on to it and lets it brew and lets it become a cancer? You know, the reality is that you and I cannot hang on to holding these grudges. Erasmus University did a study not too long ago, and they did it over a period of several months. They took the athletic people on campus, and what they did is they had them do different types of exercises, and then they created different scenarios. They created scenarios with the same people over a period of time, and what they did is that one time they would have these people think about a very positive situation at home and have them relay how they got along with this family member, that family member, and how they got, things were going, and they 
there was occasion for forgiveness. And then they had them do certain exercises. One of the exercises that they particularly were watching was how high the people could jump once they, once they had their mindset a certain way. And they found that physically when they had these people who had thought about and focused on for, for quite a while before they did the physical test on a positive family relationship, those people had an average of so many inches that they could jump up. Then they took those same people and repeated this multiple times during the school years where they had them talk about an experience where somebody hurt them. Some family member did them dirty or so they thought. Something was unresolved and then they they had them do the same physical test shortly thereafter, and they found a noticeable marked difference between those who are those same people when they were thinking of positive relationships as opposed to the grudges. They literally went only three quarters as high in their jump typically as they when they were taught, thinking about the grudges. The conclusion: holding a grudge weighs you down physically. It affects us. Even in a physical scenario, you've got all kinds of stories that you can talk about. Do you remember this gal? You all remember her, right? The one on the left. Okay. Do you remember where she's from? Little House on the Prairie. Her name is Nellie Olson. She was a lovely, bright, lovable child on that program. No, she was the the brat, the snot, you know, the, you know the, the terrible one. She, in these later years, has done what some of these child movie stars do. They go and they sell their, their um, signatures and autographs. She's at the Los Angeles County Fair here last year, and she said that she's signing signatures like she's done on several occasions. And as she's signing, she says that a lot of people were in the tent, and they were commenting and, you know, reminiscing about different programs and episodes, and, you know, and, you know as she is Nellie. And uh, she said this one lady came up who had been standing there for a while, and she noticed that this lady didn't converse with anybody, but just arms crossed. She finally gets to the front of the line, and so the lady stood there, and she was shaking, and her fists were clenched, and, you know, um, what's her real name? Allison. Looks up at her, and she said, would you like an autograph? And the woman just did this, and she says, do you have something I can sign? You know, paper, book, something. The woman didn't talk. She said, I started to get afraid because she was just acting so weird. And she said, my husband standing behind came up and said, is everything okay? Should we get the security guards? And about that time, the woman leaned forward and she says, I forgive you for all the mean things you did to Laura. And turned around and walked away. <laughs> We're talking 35 years after the program. And it was all a show. And this woman was physically upset by Nellie Olson for 35 years. What a terrible, terrible burden to bear for all those years. Oh, you got the other stories. This gentleman uh, was in high school, and uh, his name, you can see there, Carl Erickson, he uh, had a classmate in high school. He was the non-athletic person. He was the, in charge of the school newspaper. Well, the athletic guy who was the captain of the football team and all those things, Norm Johnson, had played pr a prank on him when they were in the locker room, taking the towel and whipping him with the towel and embarrassing him that way. And it bothered him. 
It bothered him and it bothered him and it bothered him. Now, they both grew up in this town in South Dakota and time goes by. Erickson has his own insurance agency. Everything's going well. But he kept on thinking about how that man treated him in high school that day in the locker room. And it bothered him to the point that in his retirement years when he's 73 years old, he goes one night to that man's house, knocks on the door. Johnson opens the door and he shoots him. He kills him. And then he told his, the man's wife, he said, I couldn't help it. He made me so mad 50 years ago. 50 years or more is a long time to carry a grudge about something that happened in high school. Terrible. Terrible. But does it happen? I, I would not be surprised if there are some here who have some childhood hurts that you're still holding towards mom and dad, towards a brother and sister, towards a cousin for somebody who you think you got mistreated, you think that you got the worst end of the deal, and you still have tension issues with those other folk. Come to a point of greatness. Come to a point of greatness where you say, okay, let's resolve these issues. Let's let it go and let's move on. Greatness is seen by living out this verse. Blessed are the peacemakers. They are going to be called the children of God. They will have testimony. Let me give you a contrast of these two guys. You got Abraham who walks by faith, Lot who walks by sight. Abraham is following the Lord. Lot is looking for the riches. Abraham, as we've already seen, he is willing to give up his rights. He doesn't need to have more stuff. He wants a peaceful relationship. He is willing to sacrifice and take the more arid land, take the tougher land, and let Lot have the better of the crops, the better of the deal, the better of the quote-unquote prosperity, just so we can have a peaceful situation and resolve conflicts and then just kind of live apart. But listen, one of us has got to move. And so Lot, you can make the move. And so his goal is peaceful living situation, even if it doesn't mean more crops, more this, more that. Lot, on the other hand, is after stuff. He's the type of individual he wants more. He has seen prosperity in Egypt. Now he looks and he looks towards the plains of Sodom, as we already read, and he is attracted because they are as fertile as Egypt, it said, or even the garden. And he's looking for prosperity. He's looking to get more. He's looking to have much, to become the wealthiest in the land. And so moved and motivated by greed. And by the way, do you have, don't say it out loud, do you have relatives that sometimes are motivated by greed? That they will do anything to get ahead? Well, that's what happens here. And so you have Abraham who says, you just go, you decide, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you have first choice. Acts graciously, trust the Lord. Watch what happens in the flow of the text. Jump down into chapter 13. It says, verse 12, Abraham dwelled in the land of Canaan. Lot dwells in the plains. The city's plain pinched his tent. And by the way, the men of Sodom and Gomorrah, they were wicked. It was already known. It was, it was already obvious to everybody how bad that was. Now look what happens right after that. Right after Abraham has graciously sacrificed. He has shown that he's after peace and he is trying to do that which is right in relationships. The Lord said unto him, after Abraham, after that lot was separated from him, he says, okay, lift up now your eyes and look from the place where you are, north, south, east, west. For all the land which you see, to thee will I give it you and to your seed forever. 
And I will make your seed as the what? The dust of the earth. So that if a man can number the dust of the earth, then thy seed also shall be numbered. Arise, walk through the land, the length of it, the breadth of it, for I will give it you. And he removed his tent and starts doing his travel. God gives him and expands upon the promise that he's already given him and says, by the way, the land that you're walking in, the land that Lot forfeited, this is yours. I'm blessing you with the land. In fact, I'm not only going to give you land, I'm going to tell you, you're you're offspring. I had said before that through you generations would be blessed. Now it's more specific. You're going to have lots of generations after you. You're going to be fruitful. You're going to be called and sung about as Father Abraham had many sons. And it is so true, you will have many, many, many of them. They will be like the dust. And so here he is, this guy who willingly said, I will give up my rights in order to have peace with somebody else. He gets rewarded with the stuff that he gave up. The things that didn't motivate him, God provided for him. And God took care of it. Who's the other, on the other side? The guy who says, this is my motivation. This is what I'm after. And I will do whatever, I get, whatever it takes to get, get, get. What does he end up with? At the end of the story, what's he end up with? Nothing. Nothing. He doesn't end up, he, uh, he ends up with only his wife and two daughters fleeing the city, and then he loses his wife in flight. What happened to all of his herds? What about all of his flocks? What about all the herdsmen that he had? Where did everything go? It ends up basically he's living in a cave with his daughters later on. Now you look at these two guys, and here's what your obvious conclusion is. Who's called the child of God? Who is the individual that God promotes? Who is the individual that God rewards? Abraham has a testimony. And Lot, we don't even know he's saved until we come to the New Testament and we hear and read where it says, and righteous Lot was vexed in his soul or spirit. Otherwise, we wouldn't even know he was saved because he didn't act like it. He lost his testimony to all of us. Here's the, here's the bottom line. God rewards the graciousness of an individual who says, I will seek for resolution in conflicts. I will try to resolve those. So we have this greatness seen in Abraham in dealing personal family conflicts and the family issues. It's not only when there is a conflict that is brewing, but his greatness is seen when one of his relatives gets in trouble. When somebody is in desperate need, it happens to be Lot. We've already read about it. Lot is is living in Sodom and Gomorrah. The kings from the east come. They invade the territory. They beat the five kings in rebellion, including the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah. And so Lot and everybody, as we already read in chapter 14, they're carried away. They are taken uh, with all the victuals, chapter 14, 11, and 12. Abraham comes to his rescue. Abraham, by the way, you got this story here? You got this story that, you just think about it. Lot's desire is to be free. Lot's desire is to get to get. Boy, his, his life is irony. Talk about irony. Talk about signs of irony that stand out. Here, let me give you a few of those. Isn't this ironic that somebody writes on the wall, these things I hate, vandalism, irony, and lists. It's kind of silly. It's kind of ironic. Here's something that's ironic. Science is always open, but now they're closed. Okay. Here's irony. Nothing is ever written in stone. But where is it written? In stone at that moment. Here's irony. Okay. Their literacy rate, but they can't even get the heading right and spelling it. Here's, here's irony. Somebody trying to put the letters down. 
If you don't get it, school is mis misspelled, okay, right outside the school zone. Here's one. Please do not tape anything to the glass. Put up with tape to the glass. I looked at it until it dawned on me, what's wrong with the picture? The blue, right below the big sign. Yeah, this is the place that fixes everything, but their own front of their, their building, it's all covered with blue. Here's irony. We are committed to excellence. If you don't know what, it, what it, here, it's not, it's not with an S, it's with a C. Here's irony. Think safety first by the guy who's standing at the, yeah, the way that we would do things here. Okay, you know, getting up on ladder. L irony in Lot's life. Here's irony. Lot is wanting to become independent of Abram, kind of get his own freedom, get away. He becomes the captive. He's captured by many. He wants to get more. He ends up with absolutely nothing. That's ironic. And that's, that's the, his situation. As you already mentioned, that's where he ends up. How does Abraham respond to him? Does Abraham respond when he's in trouble? He hears about him and he says, well, you made your bed. Might as well lie in it. You deserve it. Yeah, you deserve to kind of get beat up because of what you did to me. Not at all. Abraham in his greatness, which to me is it's so commendable. Abraham has a selfless concern not an animosity, not an anger that says it serves him right being taken and, and, and becoming a captive. He, he didn't treat me the way he should have. He should have let me go first. He should have given me the greater of the opportunity. He doesn't have apathy when he hears about a problem. Instead, he responds to try to help out. He doesn't say he made his bed, he's got to sleep in it. He doesn't say it's too dangerous. I'm going against five, four kings and their armies. It's going to be too difficult. I don't have as many man. I got to travel a long distance. It's going to be a dangerous situation. Instead, Abraham gets involved in trying to help out that relative who drives him nuts. Instead, here, what, here's what we have. A loving faith does not rejoice in the calamity of others. You got that relative. You got that roommate. You got that doormate. You got that, that somebody that you got issues with. And when things go wrong, do you kind of gloat in it? Do you kind of say, well, it's really too bad. But inside, it's kind of rejoicing that they've got some issue. He doesn't. He doesn't nourish the grudge that we've talked about. Loving faith does what is best for those in need, even if they don't deserve your help. Even if, even if you're advised not to help them because the way they've treated or mistreated you. Instead, you and I should do what Romans chapter 12 says. If somebody doesn't do us right, what do we heap upon their heads? Not revenge. Not grudge, not hatred, not laughter at their problems, but coals of fire to provide assistance, to help them out when they are struggling. And so the Word of God talks about that we are to return love even for anger that's shown us, or hatred, or jealousy, or envy. We're supposed to be like Christ. Loving faith seeks to recover individuals who have gotten away, whatever it takes, no matter what they've done. And so we've got somebody here, a great man, who responds to difficult people in a phenomenal way, in a very good illustration for all of us. What we come down to is this, okay? He's displaying his greatness in his battlefield experiences, in his relationships with people who are creating tension. His greatness is seen in the way he displays his faith. Watch what he does in this passage, okay? Wherever he is at, He's developing a pattern, and it's, it's showing up in his life. I want you to go back to chapter 13. When he comes out of Egypt, he does this, okay? He's chasing in Egypt 
for having run down there for the famine, and he gets the, the chastening hand of God because of the, the lying and the corruption that he had with lying about his sister. He ends up coming back into the promised land. And what does he do? It says in chapter 13, verse 1, where we read already, he went up out of Egypt, he and his wife, and all those with him, unto the place, verse 4, of the altar which he had made there at the first, and there he calls upon the name of the Lord. He's developing a pattern, a new pattern in his life, that as God is leading, even as God is, is going to allow him to be restored, he is going to give praise. He is going to get worship. We have that same thing happening a little bit further in the story. That here's a, a time where he has shown his charity towards Lot, giving him first choice, the, trying to resolve the problem. And what happens? God promises that he is going to let him have the land. We already read this, chapter 13, verses 14, 15, 16. Look at verse 18. After he receives the blessing of the Lord, the reward of the Lord for doing what's right, then Abraham removed his tent, came and dwelt in the plain of Mamre, which is in Hebron, and built there an altar unto the Lord. He's again making a marking place, showing that this is his faith in a land that is pagan and saying, this is what I believe, this is who I worship, and this is my memorial stone that I am serving the Lord and giving praise and worship to him. After they go into battle, they, he conquers. He defeats the kings. He comes with, uh, with all the people and returns the people back to their cities. We read in verse 17. The king of Sodom went out to meet him after his return from the slaughter of Kedorlaomer and the kings that were with him at the valley of Shavah, which is at the king's dale. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine. And he was the priest of the Most High God. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and of earth. And blessed be the Most High God, which hath delivered thine hands into thy enemies. Now, this is the same Melchizedek we read about in Hebrews 7. That a whole story is developed and a whole idea upon that. But I want you to catch verse 20, the last phrase. And Abraham gives tithes to Melchizedek. What, that doesn't mean a whole lot. Yes, it does. It means it is an act of worship. It is an act of public gratitude, thankfulness, giving to the Lord that which God had in, in, uh, in thanksgiving and in trust, giving back to the Lord that which the Lord has entrusted into his care. And so he returns this very public. And by the way, look who's standing there when he does this. The king of Sodom. Okay, uh, said unto Abram, he says, give me the persons and take the goods to yourself. Now, king of Salem is Melchizedek. King of Sodom is the wicked king because it's a wicked city. It's a wicked culture. And he says, okay, Abraham, let us give you some things. And Abraham said to the king of Sodom, verse 22, I have already made a vow unto the Lord, the most high God, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take from, take from a thread even to a shoe latchet, and that I will not take anything that is yours, lest you should say someday, I have been one who have made Abraham rich. Save only that which the young men, my soldiers, have eaten and the portion of the men which went with me. And they list some other things. His point is this. After the victory, he is giving public praise to God. In all of these situations, he is wanting to make sure God is honored. God is exalted. When people are praising him, he's giving glory back to God. He is not infringing on God's glory. He's giving this praise, this worship, even in front of individuals who are pagan, even in front of in individuals who don't believe in God. Okay? And he's going to make sure that they, his 
his testimony is sure. He's making markers. He's letting things behind that show he is a believer. And he's not going to be persuaded or intimidated by other individuals who are given to the wickedness, who would mock him, who would criticize him. Instead, he displays his faith in front of others. He talks about his vows to the Lord. He is putting his faith on display, not in his pocket, not in his vest coat, not hidden in a closet. He is saying, I am a believer and I'm honoring the Lord. He isn't pushing it on somebody and being obnoxious, but he is just presenting his faith in a very clear, simple, bold fashion. That's amazing. I take my hat off to somebody who does that who doesn't have great faith only in a crowd like this, but an individual who expresses his faith, his beliefs, in the middle of the workplace, in the middle of the school, where there could be angst, there could be uh, rancor, there could be criticism, there could be mocking. The place where you declare your faith when you go to somebody's home who is an unbeliever, when you talk to your relatives without being rude and, and, and hypercritical of them, but you're sharing your simple faith and you're not ashamed of your markers, of your altars for the Lord, the markers of your faith when it comes to, I'm a believer. Yes, I have a Bible. And yes, I'm not trooping it around just for show, but I'm, it's genuinely a part of my life. I'm not going to be ashamed of the music that I listen to. I'm not going to be ashamed of, of the pictures that I hang. I'm not going to be ashamed of the Bible verses that I carry with me to memorize. I'm going to talk about and, not, and I'm going to share my faith in a very simple and forthright fashion. And then he remains unspotted from the world. The king of Sodom wants to make him rich, wants to give him rewards. And he giving him a grand opportunity to add to his coffers. And he said, nope, nope. Touching that is not going to be healthy. It's not going to be wise. It would jeopardize my testimony. And for whatever, on all those reasons, he is going to say no to the king of Sodom because he made a vow to the Lord. He is going to rely upon the Lord and the Lord's blessing to make him rich, to make him prosperous. And so here he is as an individual when opportunity arises to be tainted. He isn't tainted. He is one who maintains purity in that culture. He is one who maintains his integrity. He is an individual who maintains his testimony. He's a guy who, quite frankly, he has great faith. Great way of displaying it. He has this consistent pattern of worship to the Lord. He is an individual who separates from ungodly worldly associations as he sees them in his culture. He's an individual who would quickly give up his rights and give up those things that he deserves so as to maintain a purity in his life. Without excuse, without apology, this guy's a great man of God. He is an individual that, you know, he stands out. Now, you take all that and say, what if any of those areas do we need to work on? What areas do we need to, to give some attention to seeking the, to resolve the issues, providing assistance, trying to help out others, trying to make sure I give up my rights, to show forgiveness and assistance to somebody who blew it, to be an individual that will, will not hide faith but will show my faith and declare it without being proud and pompous and arrogant, but in a spirit of humility and gratitude to the Lord. Be a faithful, consistent testimony. This is a great man of God. This is what you can be and I and you should be. Let's take in seriously when we go to prayer. Let's take seriously what areas we can grow in in order to better and improve our testimony that we are followers of the great one, Jesus Christ, and be great in our faith. Thanks.